hi, this is Glenn Rawson. One of the most powerful ways to share history and heritage is by the telling of stories. We began sharing inspiring stories nearly 30 years ago. Each of those stories is true and was intended to inspire and strengthen faith. Over the years, those stories have reached millions around the world. This podcast is for you to listen, learn, and enjoy. George Isaac Frary, F-R-A-R-Y, George Isaac Frary, was born in 1854 in Wisconsin Territory. In 1879, he married Alice Elizabeth Phillips. It is said that George was an experienced sailor on the Great Lakes. Now, I don't know any of the story. I couldn't find the information, but evidently in time, he and Alice joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and after coming through Colorado, they moved to Utah. This was in the early 1890s. Around that same time when they arrived here, it was thought by some that Antelope Island was rich in mineral wealth, gold, silver, later on, oil, and other things like that. Well, George and Alice decided to move out onto Antelope Island with, at that time, their four children and establish a claim and start prospecting. Now, they knew what that island was like. They knew it was deservedly called a desert island and that life would be difficult. I can see George going, but Alice and the four children, well, they went too. The Freries built a three-room log cabin on Antelope Island on the east side of the island, about south central, and it was there that they raised their family. Now, life on that island was at best a lonely, hard-scrabble existence. When the prospecting didn't pan out as hoped, they turned to ranching. At one time, George and John Dooley were the men instrumental in the introduction of the first bison, buffalo as we call them, on Antelope Island. The herd that's there now are remnants of those original ones brought out there by George Frary. Now on the home front, it is said that Alice was an experienced teacher and she taught her children in a home, that little tiny cabin home, filled with love, music, and books. They would take whatever books they could get and Alice had a small pump organ that filled that home. On September 21st, 1897, two months after the birth of their daughter, Florence Hope Frary, Alice became ill. George, according to the accounts, got into a boat and set out across the Salt Lake to get medicine and help around Ogden or somewhere along the Wasatch Front. Accounts vary as to where he went exactly or what happened, but all agree that Alice passed away before George could get back to her. Her dying request to her children was to be buried on the island. Today, a stone monument marks her grave on the island's east side. She was only 38 years old. The family left the island in 1902, but fanciful imaginations say 
that if you stand by Alice's lonely wilderness grave on a calm day, you can hear the strains of her small pump organ carrying on the breeze. Part 2 of the story. I set out with two of my beloved daughters, Donnie Jo and Annie, the youngest, to climb Frary Peak, which is named for the Frary family and lies immediately to the west of their homestead. Frary Peak is, as far as I know, the highest point on Antelope Island. Accordingly, we left mid-morning, not early morning. The temperatures were below freezing. We walked. 4.1 miles up the ridge and across the range to reach the top of Frary Peak. 4.1 miles from where we started and climbed about 2,500 feet in elevation. From the top and going up, we could see Frary Homestead site down below us, though not very well, especially on top. Because if you recall, those of you who live here along the Wasatch Front, A weather system set in and obscured most of the valley in a beautiful rolling fog. The fog and the clouds obscured most of the Wasatch Range except for moments when the peaks, snow-covered and glistening, would rise above the fog. The fog came up over Antelope Island's summit and moved on out across the lake. At one point, standing on top of the summit, there was only one small plat- patch of blue sky and clear water in 360 degrees, and that was to the north. It was gorgeous. Well, we took pictures, did the Instagram thing, etc., etc., and we were off the mountain in good time, celebrating our victory. Now, why did we go at such an unlikely time of the year. My daughter Annie expressed it for all three of us. She said, quote, I want to start on top of a mountain. <laughs> Just the way she said that, Joe and I said, amen, sister, we're there. And so we did. After all that all of us have been through, I hope that we are as tough and resourceful as George and Alice Frary, that we can stand the wildernesses of affliction and difficulty, and that we have, by the grace of God and hard work, I pray for you, many victories, small and large. What is the best way to tackle a new year? I don't know, and I don't have any resolutions. But my dad used to say, take the bull by the horns, boy, and get after it. Well, I think we set the mountains and we charge up them. I hope by me telling that story, I don't offend anyone. I just want to encourage that you have courage and off you go. Now, this next year, we're going to be studying the Doctrine and Covenants. And as you probably already know, the Doctrine and Covenants does not read like any other book of Scripture. It has no written storyline, no narrative. And yet, there is a rich history within the book. As we have been doing on these firesides, 
I'm going to be sharing a few stories, hopefully one or two a week, to bring the Doctrine and Covenants and its story to life. People, places, and events that are connected to those revelations that give context and richer meaning. Hence, this story. September 24th, 1834, Kirtland, Ohio. A council of 15 men presided over by Joseph Smith Jr. met to consider the doctrine of Christ for the government of the Church of Latter-day Saints, as it was called at that time. A scriptures publication committee was appointed consisting of the First Presidency. This was no light task. It was concluded that the doctrines of Christ be assembled in this new volume from the Bible, Book of Mormon, and the revelations which have been given to the church up to that date. Less than one year later, August 17, 1834, Oliver Cowdery arose with the newly published book in his hand and called for a vote from the quorums of the church assembled. In the course of that sustaining, certain leaders spoke and bore their witness of the book, meaning the Doctrine and Covenants. Among them was President John Smith, the uncle of the Prophet Joseph. The minutes record that President John Smith arose and testified his joy that we have at length received the long-wished-for document to govern the church in righteousness and bring the elders to see eye to eye, end of quote. He then testified that the revelations came from God. President Smith, John Smith, then called for the vote of his quorum that they would receive the book as the rule of their faith and practice and put themselves under the guidance of the same. The vote was unanimous, and so it went through every quorum down to the deacons until finally a vote was called from the General Assembly of the Saints. The vote carried, and the new book was canonized. It was received as Scripture, and thus was born the Doctrine and Covenants of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And to its unique name, the first 70 pages of that original text were the Lectures on Faith, which contained, it was reasoned, the doctrines of the Church. Following that, in the volume, were the revelations received by Joseph Smith that contained the covenants or commandments of God to the saints of the last days. In short, it was the doctrine and covenants. It was and is that volume meant to govern the church of Christ and bring us all to see eye to eye with the Almighty. Now, my friends, as you study the Doctrine and Covenants this next year, please consider, you remember those days when you might have been younger and you encountered a Bible called a Red Letter Bible and you could open it up and there all the words of Jesus Christ himself 
as recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Acts, was in red. I've talked to people who had those Bibles, and they loved them because they could go right to the words of the Savior. The Doctrine and Covenants is, from page one to the end, the voice of Jesus Christ himself. I hope you have a wonderful year studying the book. Out of adversity, my friends, sometimes great things happen. There had been many reversals of the family fortunes, and just when circumstances were beginning to look brighter, a terrible epidemic swept the Connecticut River Valley in 1813. Before that pandemic was through, some 6,000 people lost their lives in that valley. It was typhoid. Sophronia was only nine years old, and she was hit hard by the disease. Typically, the disease would run its course in three to four weeks. But in Sophronia's case, she was attended by a physician for 89 days. And then on the 90th day, the doctor concluded that she was too far gone to receive any benefit from the medicine, and he gave her up. That next night, Sophronia lay motionless on the bed, her eyes wide open, the look of death upon her countenance. Her mother stood looking at her, grieving, as you can imagine. Just then, her husband came up. They clasped hands and dropped to their knees before the bed in prayer. Together, they poured out their souls to God, pleading with him, that he would spare their precious daughter a little longer. The Almighty heard them, and something happened. Both mother and father were given by the Holy Spirit to understand that their little girl would live. She would recover. However, when they arose from the prayer, Sophronia had stopped breathing. Mother swiftly caught the little child up in a blanket and wrapped her against her breast and began pacing the floor, holding her as close as possible. There were those in the room who protested this action as a waste of time. It's all of no use, they said. Your child is dead. I can only imagine the emotions present. Who do you trust? God and his whispered promises or the resonant cries of the naysayers and a doctor. Mother refused to let her go, refused to doubt the promises of God. At length, quoting, Sophronia sobbed. Mother continued to hold her close and pace the floor. Finally, the child sobbed again then looked up into her mother's face and began breathing normally. It was enough. Sophronia would recover. My soul was satisfied, mother recorded, but my strength 
was gone. I laid my daughter on the bed and sunk by her side, completely overpowered by the intensity of my feelings. End of quote. Sophronia Smith would make a full recovery. But that would not be the end of the family's trial. Shortly after that, Sophronia's younger brother, Joseph Smith Jr., would be struck down by the same disease, and before it was through, he would undergo a terrible ordeal that would nearly cost him his leg and his life. After about a year, the family trial was over. Mother Smith said this, quote, Indeed, we felt to acknowledge the hand of God more in preserving our lives through such a tremendous scene of affliction than if we had seen nothing but health and prosperity. End of quote. If ever I have heard a word of wisdom, it's that. Second story from church history. 1816, Norwich, Vermont. I think that's how you say it. Joseph Smith Sr. had planted his crops three times that year. I talked about last time about Mount Tambora and the effect that that had had. And three times the crops had been nipped by the frost and destroyed. One day, Father Smith came home, sat down, and began to meditate. Shortly after, he declared that if he could arrange his business, he would go to New York where they grew wheat in abundance. He was reluctant to leave his family, but wife Lucy assured him, that if he went on ahead to make things ready, she could make the journey with the children. Sometime later that year, Father Smith set out with a friend named Howard for a new community in upstate New York called Palmyra. Father Smith went to work in Palmyra and prepared to send for his family. He rented a small home on West Main Street, just where Stafford Road joined Main Street. Those of you who've been to Palmyra, you can kind of visualize where I'm at. And then Joseph Smith Sr. sent for his family. After settling the last-minute demands of creditors, Lucy gathered the family, rode by sleigh to Royalton, where she bid her mother a final tearful farewell, never to see her again in this life. From there, all the family loaded into a wagon driven by a man named Caleb Howard and began the 300-mile journey to Palmyra. Howard would prove less than friendly. He forced Joseph Jr., then only 11 years old, to walk. Now, that wouldn't be any kind of a big deal, except that Joseph was still recovering from his serious leg operation, and walking was difficult. He had crutches or a cane. When Alvin and Hiram, his older brothers, protested, Howard knocked them down with the butt of his whip. Then, just a few miles west of Utica, New York, knowing that Lucy was out of money, threw the Smith's family goods into the street and attempted to steal their wagon. 
Lucy was surprised of the situation, ran out, grabbed the reins of the team, and in a loud voice announced to bystanders that Caleb Howard was robbing her. Now with an audience, Lucy declared, quote, As for you, sir, I have no use for you, and you can ride or walk the rest of the way as you please, but I shall take charge of my own affairs, end of quote. In other words, she fired the teamster on the spot and set out once more with her family headed for Palmyra. Joseph Jr. was given place to ride with another family, making the same journey going in the same direction. But along that route, one of the older boys knocked Joseph out of the sleigh and they rode off without him. Joseph would later record he was left to wallow in my blood until a stranger came along and picked me up and carried me to the town of Palmyra. Finally, January 1817, you figure it out. 204 years ago, this month, the Smith family reached Palmyra. Lucy records this, quote, the joy I felt in throwing myself and my children upon the tender care and affection of a tender husband and father doubly paid me for all I had suffered. The children surrounded their father, clinging to his neck, covering his face with tears and kisses that were heartily reciprocated by him. And thus, the Smith family made their home in Palmyra, New York. Thank you for listening. Many of the stories you heard today have been published and are archived at glenrossonstories.com. If you would like more information, you can communicate with us there. We will be back again with another podcast next week. <music>